I'd like to do is thank uh, Joey Boyd in particular for uh, preaching last Sunday on about an hour and 50 minute notice. Um, I don't know if that's the shortest time he's ever had, but um, I want to thank every shepherd that led the service last week because I uh, listened to the service that afternoon and just felt really blessed by the message, the prayers, and so uh, thank you men for stepping in. I, I'm grateful for, for you um, dealing with uh, some sickness last week and even dealing with it right now, so I would appreciate your prayers as, uh, as I preach. would appreciate you, you praying for me. Um, the second thing that I would like to do is I'd like to recognize uh, some friends of ours from Childersburg. My mom and dad came up today, um, but uh, um, I have some friends. Uh, Mr. and Ms. Jones are here, and well, I told you uh, probably um, four weeks ago where uh, I had probably taken 10,000 ground balls as a, as a first baseman and shortstop and all of that. Uh, Fred and, and my dad, Mally, probably hit me eight of those thousand. Uh, growing up, and so they're here sitting on the same row uh, this morning, and so I'm glad that they are here. Um, Fred and Donna, thank y'all for being here. Um, why don't we, before we open up to Second Samuel, um, ask God's blessing on uh, the preaching of His Word? Father, in in your word, the psalmist says that your law is perfect and it revives and restores the soul. The psalmist says that it brings rejoicing, that it makes wise the simple that it revives the heart. Lord, the psalmist essentially says that your word gives life and it gives it abundantly. And so right now, we want to appeal to you. We want to petition you. And we would ask you, Lord, please bring wisdom to us. Shine light upon the darkness of our souls and our hearts. Revive us with your love. Revive us with your character. Revive us with your greatness and your glory. And point us in the direction in which we may live more joyfully, more worshipfully, more satisfactorily. Father, would you do something today? Would you produce greater joy and greater celebration as we go to your word? Father, we don't want to forget right now our sister Millie Baker and Robbie Joplin as Robbie has lost his grandmother and Millie her mother. We want to ask for your grace and your mercy to flood their hearts and their lives and to all those who knew this precious woman and who loved her. We ask for your grace in them today as they grieve. We, Lord, we Lord pray that they would not grieve as those who have no hope, but those who have hope in Jesus Christ. And so just penetrate that family with your grace today. And now, Lord, be with us in power as we seek to be revived. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. 
as we've stated for 29 sermons, I think it is now, God is building His kingdom through chaos and crisis. God is building His kingdom through chaos and crisis. He is right now, and He was 3,000 years ago. And I want, to, I want to bring something that is a bit of an aside, but is really important, church. When we go to the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, we are often inclined to look at the Old Testament in character sketches. And so we want to look at the story of Adam and Eve, and we see Adam and Eve's lack of trust in God, and we say, don't be like Adam and Eve. But then we look further and we see Joseph and we see his integrity and we're like, be like Joseph. And then we get to 2 Samuel and we see Saul and his self-seeking, glory-seeking self and we say, don't be like Saul. But then we get to David and we see his valiant effort to glorify God in all things and we're like, be like David. And we just walk through the, the Old Testament and we say, don't be like him, don't be like her, be like him and be like her. And what we need to understand is that all of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament is not primarily character sketches for us to look at the characters. No, we're to see these characters. And then in seeing these characters, we're to look beyond them and we're to look to who? We're to look to God. Because you see, this story is about God. The story is about God building His kingdom, rescuing people, saving people, loving people. And sometimes His people make terrible mistakes and do awful things. And then sometimes His people do wonderful things and act in faith. And we need to recognize both of those. But the, the story never ends with the person. And we don't key off of the person. We key off of God. And we worship God. And so, like even in 2 Samuel chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see some really good things about David. And we'll point those out. And we'll even look at our own lives. But the point is for us to see how God is saving His people. He is fulfilling His promises. He is doing His work and, and so that we can see God in this picture. You guys understand that? Good? Okay. All right. So what are the promises that God has made to David? He, he said, I've made, I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel. I'm going to plant them in peace and they're going to have rest. I will make you, David, a house, which means I will make you a dynasty. I will raise up offspring after you. I will establish your kingdom forever. I will be to your offspring a father, and he will be to me a son. He will be a servant to me. I will punish him for his iniquity or discipline him. I will keep my steadfast love on him no matter what. But David, your house, your throne, your kingdom will be established forever. Those are all the promises that God made to David in chapter 7. And just like Phil told us as he prepped us for the service today, David responded to, to God. And basically this is, what, this is what David said. He said, wow, God, you're awesome. Man, that is, those are some amazing promises. Glory be to your name forever and ever. And I just have one request. Just do everything you promised. That's just what I want you to do. Do what you've promised to do. And chapters 8, 9, and 10 is the story of God fulfilling His promises and answering David's petition. That's what it is. So That's what we're about to walk through. So if you look down at the passage, what we're going to see is six marks. Six marks of the King in His glory. The title of the message is The King in His Glory. The King in His Glory. And the first thing that we see in chapter 8 is the victory of the King. The victory of the King. 
So after this, after God's promises, after David's petitions, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, marking them, uh, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. You're like, what is going on there? What is all that about the lines? Well, any other king and any other commander of an army would have just wiped everybody out. It was really an act of mercy for David to spare some of the Moabites in this place. But he's already defeated the Philistines over to the west. He's now defeating the Moabites from the north to the south. Verse 3, he also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. What does it mean to hamstring? It means to sever that back ligament in, in a horse's, I guess it's, I think it's called the hock, to sever one of the, the big ligaments in the way so he cannot run at full speed. It doesn't kill the horse. The horse can continue to live, but he can't, he can't go in battle. And so that's exactly what David did for these horses so they would not be able to defeat uh, any of da uh, David's men. So verse 6, David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. You know, previously in Samuel, we have seen where invading nations have had garrisons in Israel. Now we're seeing David wiping out any of those garrisons and then establishing garrisons in the opposing nations. God is doing what he's promised to do. He's planting peace and rest in the nation of Israel. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Baratai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. And so what is David doing? David, in, in contradiction to the previous king, where the previous king would gather as much stuff as he could from the neighboring nations who were opposed to him, and he would gather gold, silver, whatever, and glorify himself with it, David is taking all of these precious resources and he's giving them to who? To God as an act of worship. He's saying, this is not about me. This is about God and His glory. And so when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. I don't want to make much of that little story right there, but have you ever heard the, the, the old uh, adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend? That's what's happening right here. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Also what is happening here is that this king is taking notice that David is being successful. And he's having victory wherever he goes. And you know what he wants to do? You know what he wants to do? He wants to make peace with the king. You know, we would do well. We would do well if we were constantly trying to get people to make keep peace with the king. Let's continue reading. These also 
uh, King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. From the north to the south, from the, from the east to the west. David is conquering. He is being victorious. And verse 13 says, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the valley of salt. Another fulfilling promise of God. He says, I'm going to make a name for yourself, David. And that is exactly what happens here. And verse 14 says, he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This is the victory of the king. This is God saying, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to provide rest for your people. I'm going to provide peace for your people. I'm going to provide a name for yourself, and I'm going to do it. A few weeks ago when I preached from 7, 1 through uh, 28, or 1 through 18, or whatever that, that section was, I counted, I counted church like 22 times. God said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And so David goes out, and he accomplishes all of this, but the narrator is specifically telling us twice in these 14 verses, who is the one who provided the victory for Israel? The Lord. The Lord. And so the king in his glory is for us to see, wow, this king is really doing some special things, but it's not the king ultimately. It is the Lord. It is the Lord accomplishing his victory. Let's continue reading because the second thing that we're going to see is the the supervision of the king. The supervision of the king. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sarai was secretary. And Benai, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Now I know that the wars and the battles and the victories get a lot of the ink. But right here in what, four verses? In four verses the narrator is saying, David's not just a king who goes out to battle. David is a shepherd who cares for the intricate details of the life of the people in his nation. And you know, the reality is this, church. That in great leadership, in, in great shepherding of people, everybody wants to look at the preaching of the word, like in the church. People want to look at all the, the razzmatazz that goes on that's exciting and the music. But you know where, where your life is often most blessed in the day-to-day -day living of your life and how you're encouraged and blessed by new ways to love and new ways to be loved within the body? And a lot of times that happens in meetings and in prayer times and in organizations, and writing up on whiteboards, and making, the, and that's exactly what David is doing. David is blessing the nation of Israel, not just by going out and winning a bunch of battles, but being very specific, and very organized, and administering justice and equity in all the land by putting leaders in the places that they can bless the nation. I think it's something that we should observe. That the combination of the king and his glory doesn't just have to do with winning battles, but it also has to do with strategically caring for the needs of people in the nation. 
I need to learn from that as well as a pastor. You have the supervision of the king. Third, you have the love of the king. So this is the king in his glory. We see his victories. We see his supervision. Third, we see his love. It's all of chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now church, let's just stop for a moment and let's remember where we've been. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is on the run. Saul is a madman. He's trying to kill him. And who is David's greatest confidant and greatest friend? Jonathan. Jonathan. And Jonathan is helping David out. And Jonathan and David realize that this could be the end for them. I mean, Saul is after him. And, and Jonathan doesn't know what's going to happen to him. David doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And Jonathan essentially says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make covenant with me again. I want you to strike this covenant. Let's make it. And I don't want you to cut my house off forever. You're going to be king. I know it. You know it. Don't, please don't strike my house off forever. And so David swears to the covenant. He says, I will not. And then four chapters later, Saul is looking for David. He's on the run. And, and David has the opportunity to kill Saul because Saul has no idea that David is in the cave, in the darkness, where Saul is relieving himself. And Saul leaves the cave and David comes out and they have an interaction. Saul and David do. And if you can remember... David says, man, why are you coming after me, a dead dog? It's going to come up here in a minute. A dead dog like me. I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. Why are you coming after me? And Saul, Saul says, well, I know you're going to be the king. I know that your reign is going to be established forever. And when it is, would you please not cut off my people and my family? And the man who has tried to murder David, the man who is after him and is doing anything he can to just wipe him off the face of the earth, David looks at him square in the eyes and says, I will not cut you off. That's the background to chapter 9 right here. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I'm your servant. In other words, yeah, I'm Ziba, but I'm your servant. I know I've been a servant of your enemy Saul. I know I've been in the household of your enemy who tried to kill you time and time again. But I just want you to know, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Church, many of you know that word kindness right there. It's often translated steadfast love. Sometimes it's, it's uh, translated loyal love. It is that Hebrew word hesed. It, it, it's, it's, the, it's the love that proceeds from God that's almost like a rainbow. You, you, it's better not to define it. It's rather just to observe it. Okay, And that's what we're about to observe right here. What, what kind of love does, does David want to show to the household of Saul, his previous enemy? Ziba said, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth 
That, that name actually means disgrace. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Mephibosheth knows whose son he is. He's Jonathan's son. Mephibosheth knows whose grandson he is. He's Saul's son. He's from the enemy camp. Church, you know that for centuries and centuries, whenever a new king would rise up and take the reins and take the throne of the kingdom, one of the very first actions that he would do was go find all the family members of the previous king and wipe them out, completely kill them. Why? Because he didn't want any of them to try to rise up and take the throne again. Mephibosheth is afraid. Mephibosheth is nervous. Wow, he's afraid of what David is going to do to him. And so, and so David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Church, dogs didn't have the same reputation 3,000 years ago that they have today in the United States. When they, when they thought of dogs or when they saw dogs, it wasn't like, oh, look at that puppy. It was more like, oh, get that thing away from me. It, it was almost, so, so when Mephibosheth is saying a dead dog like me, he's almost like in our culture, it would be like a dead armadillo like me. <laughs> I mean, you guys see those on the road, right? It just kind of gross you out, or at least they do me. And that's what he's saying. That's what I am. I'm crippled because when, because when my grandfather and my father were killed by the Philistines on the course of battle, uh, I, was old, I was just a young guy, four or five years old, and I was being carried and fell, and my, I became lame in my feet. I, I'm a nothing. I'm from the enemy people. Why in the world would you have mercy on me? And, and David... David expresses great love for him and great commitment to the covenant that he had established with both Jonathan and with Saul. Let's continue to read. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands a servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. He ate always at the king's table. He ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Church, I just think it's absolutely beautiful and necessary for us to see that David is not just keeping the minimal nature of the covenant that he made with Jonathan and with David. 
As a matter of fact, church, I don't think that we could blame David if he didn't just go out and seek somebody from the household. I mean, who would have blamed him if he just kept on trucking? And if something came up about somebody still living in Jonathan's household, maybe he could do something with it. But notice the extravagant, intentional love of David as to say, is there anybody left? And he, then he brings the anybody left in, and it's Mephibosheth. And in that culture, someone who was lame in their feet was looked at like a dog, like you're worthless. You don't, you don't mean anything. You can't produce anything. So, so we don't want you around. And David says, not only am I going to bless you, not only am I going to care for you, but you're going to be in my home, and you're going to sit at my table. And if you are sharing bread, breaking bread and drinking with someone at your own table, especially the king's table, that is a sign of honor, a sign that you belong in the family. It's a sign that you are a friend. This is not just a, just a, oh, well, we'll just let him sit here. No, David is saying, I love you. I honor you. I'm going to treat you like family. I'm going to treat you like one of my own because you are. And so for every single day, Mephibosheth gets to live and abide and eat at the table of the king. This is extravagant love. This is loyal love. This is abiding love. And this is integrity. This is the integrity of keeping your word. I was reading this week about a seminary who, who was providing some new curriculum for seminary students, those in pastoral training. And they had everything honed, but they brought in some church leaders to look at the curriculum and to ask what what could we hone about the curriculum that will help these people be better servants of the Lord and pastors in ministry? And they said the one thing that is needed in the church and the one thing that you don't have in this curriculum you can't provide but is absolutely necessary in the ministry today. Integrity. Integrity. And the seminary didn't know what to do because they couldn't produce integrity. They couldn't just say, okay, we're going to have a class on integrity, and now you have it. But there is, there is a persistent and increasing level of lack of integrity in the church today. And it starts in the pulpit and with pastors, and it's among the people. And the fact is, church, we do need to learn a lesson here from David. We need to learn that when we give our word, we keep our word. And when we make our promises, we keep our promises. And we walk and we abide according to the commitments that we have made and the covenants that have been cut. And so here you see the love of the king based on the commitment and the covenant that he made. Okay, number four, the king in his glory, we see the compassion of the king. The compassion of the king. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Pop quiz. Does anybody know the name of the king of the Ammonites? Anybody know? Nahash. Nahash, the old eye gouger. I think it's from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Remember when Saul had been appointed to be king and he's out in the field and somebody says, hey, uh, there's this guy, Nahash the Ammonite. He's going to gouge out all, all the Israelites' eyes up in Jabesh Gilead. What are you going to do about it? And Saul rallies the troops and all that and goes up and, and, and takes care of that whole bit. That's, that's Hanun is Nahash's son. And so we have to read between the lines here. Why is it that David wants to express some type of loyal love or, or whatever? Look at verse 2. David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. We can only assume that when David was on the run 
and Saul was after him, that David had found refuge in Ammon for some time. And, and Nahash had also subscribed to the theory that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so apparently that had occurred. And so David says, well, I'm going to deal loyally. I'm going to deal faithfully. I'm going I'm to care compassionately for Harnoon because his dad is dead. And so David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants, his emissaries, came into the land of the Ammonites to console him, to care for him, to love him. Surely they brought gifts. Surely they brought prayers. They're just there to care for him. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each. That is one side, not just made it shorter, but cut off the entire side of the beard to cut off the beard of an Israelite man would be the ultimate shame. But not only did they just cut, they didn't cut the whole beard off where they could just kind of grow it back fully, half of it, just to make them look like clowns in front of everybody. And not only that, what do they do? They cut off their garments in the middle at their hips. That is from the waist down. So all of their private parts are showing and sent them out of the town. What is the point of this? It is shame. It is shame. This is what, this is what Hanun is saying. I have shamed your messengers, David, and by so, that is a representation of the shame that I want to put on you as king and upon the whole nation of Israel. So when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. I want us to observe the compassion of the king in two ways. David didn't have to go to the Ammonites. He didn't have to go to Hanun and send, send his servants and say, we just want to be here for you. We just want to express our concern and our mercy and we want to grieve with you simply because we know what it's like to lose people that we love. And so I'm sending these, these guys on my behalf to say, hey, I'm, I'm grieving for you. I'm grieving with you as well. That's compassion. And that's what a king should have. Great compassion. But then... When his servants get shamed by Hanun, and they come back and they're feeling ashamed, David doesn't say, come on, enter in, tell me everything, we'll get, in the, we'll get into Jerusalem, we'll talk about what happened, we will take the information that you have as you observed it, and we'll do, no, he says, you're going to stay in Jericho. You're going to stay 10, 15 miles away from us until your beards grow out, until you're no longer ashamed, and then you can come in because the dignity that you have, I want to be restored. I want to be restored. I'll just say a good king is not just fighting battles. He's not just administrating. He's, just not, he's not doing all these things. A great and glorious king has the people's best at heart, has the people's um, concern at heart, even their dignity at heart. And so David exercised compassion both on an enemy but also those who worked for him. Fifth, let's look at the influence of the king. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. 
He sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men, the mighty warriors, those that were skilled, utterly skilled in battle. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. And when Joab, commander of David's army, saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of his men he put in charge of the Abishai's brother and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you'll help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come and help you. Now before we read verse 12, Joab, the man who is jealous of Abner, Joab, the man who is unspiritual in his mindset as he goes out and fights battles as we've seen in 1st and 2nd Samuel. Joab, the one who is more concerned about revenge than reverencing God. This Joab says to the army, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord, that is may Yahweh, do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Church, I call this the influence of the king because David has been, been being poured into by God Himself. God has been making promises to David. God has been setting apart David. David has time and time again gone onto the battlefield in the name of the Lord. And if you can remember even David in 1 Samuel 17 when he's going up against the Philistines and against Goliath, and he says, Who dare defy the armies of the living God? I'm going to come after you. I'm going to slay you. I'm going to cut off your head. I'm going to feed it to the birds of the air and the reptiles of the land. And I'm going to, know, I'm going to do this. Why? Because everybody will know that there is a God in Israel. And so David goes and he exercises courage and Joab sees this time and time and time again and David's influence is now wearing off on Joab and he, even, in, even this, this kind of carnal dude, is being influenced by a good king, a king in his glory. Well, praise the Lord for that. Finally, let's look at the supremacy of the king. The supremacy of the king. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a desert sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. The import of this section is to say that David had success everywhere that he went and he exercised his, 
His kingly authority and His kingly reign wherever the Lord sent Him or whoever the Lord brought to Him in order to defeat. This is the supremacy of the King based on the promises of the Lord. And this is the King in His glory. This is essentially the golden age of David. This is the golden age of His authority and His reign and His leadership and His love. And it is beautiful to see because God is fulfilling His promises. So that, that's really, church, if, if, we were, if we're just reading... 8, 9, and 10, and we read those three like our devotions one day last week, and we were saying, boy, what, what is the Lord teaching, teaching me in 8, 9, and 10? The answer to that question is, is that God is immediately and initially fulfilling all His promises to David. That's what He's doing. And He's answering yes to David's petitions. And so God is saying, yes, 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 here you go. I want you to know I'm faithful. I'm faithful to fulfill my promises. I'm not going to turn back on them. I'm going to listen to your requests. I'm going to answer them. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to care for my nation. I have a chosen people. I have a special people. I have an anointed king. And I'm going to bless my people through my anointed king. And all the world is going to take notice. That's, that would be the, the idea that we see in those verses. But church, you know this about me. You know this about us. We also always want to ask the question when we're studying the Bible, no matter whether we're in the Old Testament or whether we're in the New Testament, we want to ask the question, how does this passage point us to Jesus Christ, the greater King? Let's answer that. Let's answer that question. And so church, I don't know where you've been in your concentration level up to this point, but I would ask you to kind of hone in right now on Christ. Hone in on the beauty of Christ the King as we look and see how the Holy Spirit wants to direct us to our great King Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, you can, or if you just want to listen and just be absorbed by the greatness of Christ, I encourage you to do that. But when I ask this question, how does this passage point us to Christ? This is what I first said. King David was victorious in defeating sinful nations. King Jesus is victorious in defeating sin itself. Remember when He was on the cross? There are like the seven last sayings of Jesus. Well, one of those sayings is, after He had paid the penalty for our sins, the pollution of our sin, the power of our sin, the penalty of our sin, He stretched out and He utters these three words, It is finished! Look, David, it's great that he defeats all these sinful nations, but it's much better that Jesus Christ, the greater King, defeats all of our sins. Praise His name. King David struck down nation after nation to build the kingdom of God. He did. That's awesome. King Jesus was struck down by His own nation to build the kingdom of God. You know, Pilate tried to give the Israelites every way out that he could think of, every way out that he could think of to not kill Jesus. And he says, hey, hey, what about Barabbas? He's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. He's a shame to your people. Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? And on one side you have Jesus who healed the sick, who made the lame to walk, the blind to see, raised the dead, fed the hungry, cared for everybody in need, was a sheep to people without a shepherd. He did nothing but love, love, love. And they say, they say, release to us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. 
Crucify Jesus. Uh, David, the good king, man, he, he strikes down nation after nation to build the kingdom of God. Jesus, the greater king, is struck down by his own nation to build the kingdom of God. Praise his name. King David reigned over all Israel while King Jesus was ridiculed by all Israel. After, after he had gone through the ridicule of the Roman soldiers, he's put up on the cross. If you can remember what all the naysayers and all of the, the, the Israelite worshipers who were coming in for Pentecost and, and all of that were saying as they were passing by, they were saying, save yourself! And if you are the Son of God, if you are who you said you are, then come down off of that cross! And Jesus, because He's building the kingdom of God, because He's advancing God's kingdom and bringing people like you and I into it, even though He had the power to come down off the cross, He would not. Because He is building the kingdom of God by being ridiculed, by being hurt by His own people. King David showed compassion on Mephibosheth. King David spared his servants from shame by keeping them in Jericho until they recovered. King Jesus spared us from shame by experiencing shame for us. He was scourged. He was stripped. He had a mocking robe put on Him, a crown of thorns pressed into His head. They gave Him a reed, but then they took it from Him and began to beat Him with it. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And after they beat Him, they crucified Him. And then they stripped him of his clothes as they were crucifying him and cast lots for all of his clothing. And so if you think about the servants of King David walking out of the Ammonite city and into the Israelite nation completely shamed because from the waist down they have no clothes and there's no greater shame than that in the, than in the Israelite culture. Think about these servants of David experiencing that shame. But does it not raise it to a level when we see the King of kings and the Lord of lords stripped bare before all to see that He might endure shame in front of His own nation? Why? To endure the shame that you and I don't have to experience Amen. when we're trusting Him. Praise Christ, the King. And so King David sent Joab and the mighty men into battle to defeat Israel's enemies. King Jesus is the mighty man who marched in the battle of Golgotha and defeated our greatest foe. I think that is, that is why Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has set us free. He set us free because He was the mighty man who defeated sin. Church, I have one more for you. King David defeated 40,000 Syrians and subjected them to His rule, and He was supreme. King Jesus will ultimately defeat every army, every nation, every person who does not bow to Him. That is a fact. Why don't you take your Bibles, and why don't you turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. I want us to see... The King in His glory. The ultimate King in His glory. And I want us to see kind of a fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment of what we see in King David in two ways. 
So David exercises compassion on Mephibosheth and lets him sit at his table always and feeds him and cares for him and blesses him. And they experience fellowship and friendship and love. And then David goes out and he defeats 40,000 Syrians and, and exercises his supremacy in the land. I want us to see, if you would, starting at verse 6, I want you to see the ultimate fulfillment of how King Jesus brings His own broken, lame, struggling people to His table that ultimately exercises supremacy toward those who reject His kingship. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at His feet to worship Him. But He said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Church, I want you to know that you are in that passage. You are the one who gets to experience the fellowship of the Lamb, the marriage supper. And you get to get around Him forever and ever and worship Him in the splendor of His holiness because you are His bride. That's the ultimate impact of the compassion and the love and the loyal covenant faithfulness of our King. But then, but then we also see the supremacy of Christ the King. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on His head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against Him who was sitting on the horse and against His army, and the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. 
church. Sometimes we we think or we hear others say, I don't like the Old Testament because it's too bloody. I believe that this passage is confirmation of the fact that Christianity is a bloody religion. It will be bad one day for all those who do not bow their knees and humble their hearts before King Jesus and say, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. But the greatness about the bloodiness of the religion of Christ is that if you come underneath the blood of Christ and you give your life to Him and you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after Him, His blood covers over all your sins and you will have nothing but rest and peace and joy and worship forever and ever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I just want to tell you to do some things. The first thing I want to tell you to do is behold this King. And just look at it. See Him in His glory. See His compassion. See His victories. See His loyal love. See His supremacy. See all of that. Just behold it. And then the second thing you do is to bow before Him. And don't, don't, don't leave today with your hands in your pockets going about your, your life just as if nothing has changed. Listen, He is King. He is victorious. He is awesome. And He's worthy of our complete lives. But the first thing we have to do before we live for Him is we have to bow down before Him and say, You are who the Bible says You are. You are King. And so I bow before You and I worship You and I love You and I give You my heart. I give You my life. I repent of my sins. And I want to follow You more faithfully as the great King. The third thing is just bring the message of the King to your community, your region, and your world. Just take it with you. And whether you go to work tomorrow, or whether you go see your adult sons and daughters tonight, whether you have dinner with somebody tomorrow night, or you host somebody, bring the message of the King wherever you go. Because when you are in His nation, when you are a part of His kingdom, He does not want you to to deny Him. He wants you to declare Him wherever you are to expand His kingdom to the other parts of the earth.